marvelous job. It was really, really encouraging and challenging. But really the highlight for me uh, of the Tuesday evening time was, was not the, the lecture, it was the worship time. Uh, not coincidentally, Adam Looney was the worship leader for, uh, for the Tuesday evening lecture time. And uh, I mean, anytime you have several thousand voices lifted together in praise to God, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. But sometimes it just goes up another level, you know? And that was what, uh, for me, that's what Tuesday evening was. And what it reminded me of, what it made me realize is how much I take for granted what we have here uh, with a worship minister like Adam that does such an amazing job of, uh, of composing worship services and leading us in our praise. And, and, of course, the praise team does a wonderful job as well. But we are... We are incredibly blessed to have someone of his gifts and, and talents to be, uh, to be our minister, and we, we, we thank God for that. Hope that you'll uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. We're continuing the series of studies that began two weeks ago over in the, at the high school as we had our combined worship assembly there. And so whatever, uh, whatever format you have your Bible in, whether it's an old-fashioned book like mine or if it's an e-reader or an iPad or an iPod or an iPhone or, or whatever it is, I hope that you'll turn there so that we can, uh, we can look at this together. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting how our, our language, our terminology reveals what's going on in society, isn't it? All of the, the I this and the I that and the I the other, it's, it's all about me. It's all about the individual, and that's by design. That's ex- excellent marketing strategy. We have iTunes that we select just that music, those kinds of songs that we want to listen to. We have our own ringtones for our phone so that we recognize it, or maybe even for the person calling, so we recognize that. And we have, uh, we, we, we go and shop at stores that have thousands of things to choose from because we want all the selection possible so that we can get exactly the thing that we want. And it's, it's all pointed toward this obsession our culture has with the individual. Somebody said that baseball is the perfect American sport because it's all about the individual. You keep all these individual stats. But it's, it's not just that. Even in football, which is the, the preeminent team sport, I guess, it's still about the individual. You don't have the Dallas Cowboys facing the New York Giants. You have Tony Romo going against Eli Manning. And we make everything about the individual, and that should come as no surprise to us. Since a hallmark of American culture for generations has been this rugged individualism that we saw grow up in the American frontier where it was the the individual or the family alone against all of the the hardships and difficulty to to make make a life out of the hard land. And maybe that idea, maybe that ideology served us well in the rugged American frontier. Maybe it even serves us well in business and industry today. But the truth is it comes at a great price. There has never been a time when our cities have been more crowded and yet people have felt more isolated and alone than today. 
I mean, you just see that in, in our, our normal, everyday activity. We get up and we, we get dressed and we, we go get in the car and we punch the button so the garage door raises because we don't want to have to go out and raise it and might have to encounter somebody out there. And we back out and we drive down the canyons of our alleys that are have stockade fences on each side, six or eight or ten feet tall, so we can't see in anybody's backyard. We keep our windows rolled up so that we're not only environmentally comfortable, but we're isolated from having to interact with anybody around us. And if you don't think people believe that, just pay attention sometime. Next time you're stuck in rush hour traffic on the freeway, just look around at the people and what they're doing alone in their cars. You you would think they thought they had one-way glass in those things. It's just amazing to see. But we're all isolated. We're all alone. We go to, we park in the parking garage or in the parking lot and we ride up the elevator to our floor without speaking to anyone or even making eye contact because that's not what you do. We go into our cubicle or our office and we sit in front of our computer screen and we do our work and when it's over we do it all again in reverse. And we pull into our garage, we hit the button and the door comes down, we go in and we turn on our television or our computer so that we can have an evening of entertainment without having to interact with another living soul. And if we need, to, we need to buy something, we get it from Amazon. If we need to pay our bills, we do it online. If we need to get some news or information, we get it from MSNBC or Yahoo. And we don't have a connectedness with anyone. Everything about our world pushes us away from that. Even spiritual lives are impacted by that. We don't, in this world today, when somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, we talk about making a personal or accepting Jesus as our personal Savior. Now, the unforgivable sin social sin in our world is to start talking to somebody about your faith. I mean, it's okay to have that if you want to. You just keep it between you and God because it's not appropriate to start bringing it into conversation. All of this virtual isolation and individualism takes a heavy toll on us. Never before have people been more isolated, more disconnected from relationship than we see today. And to try to lessen the loneliness, they turn to all kinds of things. We join fitness clubs because at least we're with people there. Or if you're not into fitness, you go to the bars because you can be with, with people in that environment. Other people work all the time because at least we're, we're around people that are doing the same thing that we're doing. Or in its more extreme forms, People join gangs because there's a sense of connectedness, a sense of some kind of personal significance there. Or maybe they, they engage in indiscriminate sexual activity because at least there's a feeling of some kind of relationship. It's sad. These things may offer some relief momentarily, but they're never going to provide the kind of relationship that God created us to have. God made us that way. Remember last year when we were starting the story at the very beginning, the very first chapters, we were going through the story, we read about the creation, how God created everything. And every time he would, he would make something, he would create something, at the end of the day, he said, you know, 
That's good. That's really good. And the next day he would create more things. That's good. The first time God said something wasn't good came in chapter 2 and verse 18 of Genesis. He says, it says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. First time something wasn't good because we were not created to be alone. We're created in the image of God, and God's always existed in community. He created us to exist in community. So at the end of verse 18, he says, I will make a helper suitable for him. And Eve came alongside Adam so that they would have that kind of relationship they were created to live in. God's plan for for community, for being together, for relationship isn't just in marriage. It doesn't matter whether you're married or single or, or what your status is. God intends for you to live in relationship. It's his plan for all of us. And we see a, a powerful example of that here in Acts chapter 2 that we're looking at this morning. Remember last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 2, how the Spirit of God came upon the people that were gathered there on Pentecost. And, and, and they, they, there was all kinds of miraculous things that happened. And everybody, all these different nationalities heard what people were saying in their own language. And Peter gets up and he preaches the first gospel sermon. And, and, and at the end of that, we're told about 3,000 people. Well, look at verse 41 of, of uh, chapter 2. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. But unlike what we might expect for somebody today, it wasn't just a personal thing. It wasn't just accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. They became a part of a community. And Luke paints a picture of that for us here in Acts chapter 2 that's, that's as dynamic an example of community as you're going to find anywhere. Let's read his description, beginning of verse 42. They devoted themselves, these are the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's got to be one of the most amazing things anybody had ever witnessed. I mean, there are, there are 15 different nationalities that are named here in Acts chapter 2, and there may have been two or three times that many. We don't know. But all of these different people, and it wasn't just the differences of nationality. I mean, there were, there were old and young. There were rich and poor. There were conservatives and liberals. There were dark and light. There were, there were fat and skinny. There were educated and uneducated. There were, there were slave and free. There were male and female. There were progressives and traditionalists. Every kind of person imaginable was here. And they were all brought together to form a united body in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Can you imagine that happening today? We are today living in a time that's perhaps more divisive and exclusionary than any time in recent history in this country. Seems like nobody really is interested in bringing people together. All we're interested in is 
getting control so that we can dictate to everybody else that they need to do it like we think it ought to be done. Whether it's politics or society or even in the church. We are, we are living in a time that everybody wants to do their own thing and have their own way. It seems like nobody wants to come together. We wonder, is there any power on earth strong enough to overcome that tendency to want to do our own thing? Well, what we see here in Acts 2 is not only a picture of community, we also see a pattern for community. I believe we can find four things that, that Luke enumerates here about that church that form the basis for that kind of community for us to have today. Look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. First thing he says they were devoted to is the apostles' teaching. That's the essential place to start. Bottom line is, you might be able to get people to to do something for a little while, for a short time, by telling them or pressuring them or rewarding them or coercing them or whatever, but it's not going to last. If if people don't believe in something, they're not going to stay with it. And so the natural place to start is with the teaching and, and what we believe, what we understand to be true. That's where they started. You see, the apostles' teaching is what they were about. What what, what did the apostles teach anyway? Well, Matthew was an apostle. If you go in here into the New Testament and you find the book that bears his name and you read that, you'll find out what he taught because what he was teaching was about Jesus' life and his Jesus' teaching. And then, let's see, Peter was an apostle. But there's an associate, uh, a protege that Peter had by the name of Mark. And Mark kind of wrote down what Peter remembered about what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And that was what? That was Peter's teaching. Then there's a guy named John who was an apostle. You look at the book that's got his name on it here, and what you see is... Oh, Jesus' life and Jesus' teaching. You get a pattern here? What the apostles' teaching was was simply what Jesus taught. That's what they, that's what they focused on. I think we'd probably do real well to stop emphasizing all these other things, these peripheral things that neither Jesus nor the apostles had much, if anything, to say about and get back to what they did then. And look at the apostles' teaching for us today. They didn't have to come up with anything strange because it was so new and fresh. They didn't need to. But also, when it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, it's not just talking about getting your copy of the Bible and going off by yourself and reading and studying and meditating on it. Nothing wrong with that. That's good stuff to do. But that didn't happen in Acts 2. You know why? Well, New Testament didn't exist. Hadn't been written. They didn't have the apostles' teaching in written form. And, and for that matter, even years later, when they did get this in written form, because there were only handwritten copies, 
It was so expensive, 99% of the people couldn't, couldn't afford to have one. So when they were focusing on what the apostles taught, they came together and they shared those things together. It was a, it was a community activity. But they didn't just devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. We do pretty good on that with our classes and Bible studies and all that. That was the beginning. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, over the years, we've kind of really misconstrued what that is. Fellowship is not cookies and Kool-Aid, all right? It's not a potluck after church on Sunday. Uh, Nothing wrong with eating. In fact, we're going to get to eating in just a minute, but that's not what fellowship is talking about. What they meant by fellowship, well, the, the original word was koinonia, community, relationship. Probably it's best, best rendered as, as a sharing, not just in minor convenient ways, but in profoundly generous ways. Look at how it's described in verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They provided for each other. I mean, they, they went to extremes to take care of one another. And it, it's talking about monetarily here, but it's not just that. They were there for each other in every way. And they knew what each other needed, whether it was financial, whether it was emotional, whether it was some other way. Because they were constantly spending time together. Every day, they would get together. And they were developing trust in each other. The third thing they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Now we're talking about eating. But it wasn't just grabbing the burger or some tacos at your local eatery. They, they got together and shared meals in each other's homes. And there's a very, very significant thing to that. Verse 46 says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Folks, you're going to, when you get in each other's homes, when you have someone in your home and you're in their home, you begin to, to know them in a way that you're never going to get sitting here in this building or even going out to dinner. When you go to someone's home, you, you get a different flavor of, of who they are and what they're about. You see the, their pictures that they have. You, you see the things that, that are in that home, and it's, it's significant, and it gives you insights into that. Not only that, the whole conversation takes on a different tone when you're, when you're around a kitchen table or a dining room table in someone's home as opposed to being out at some restaurant somewhere. It changes the whole environment of the interaction. Now, the conversation is different. But somebody says, well, was this a common meal that they're talking about? Or was this the Lord's Supper when it talks about breaking bread? Well, there's good reason to understand it meant both. You see, for the church here in Acts 2, it was a predominantly Jewish culture. And in the Jewish culture, every meal had a sacred aspect to it. There was, there was an awareness of the presence of God every time they broke bread together. And it's very, very likely that whenever they got together for a meal, there would be a, a part of that time that they would very purposefully remember Jesus Christ, who he was and what he had done for them. That was just, that was just a part of their 
culture. And fourth thing it says they devoted themselves to prayer. And don't, don't mistake this for the kind of prayer that we sometimes have, whether it's a, a prayer in a room like this with four or 500 people gathered together, or it's a, a prayer in a, in a Bible class or in a meeting or something. You know, the obligatory preface and postlude to the thing that we really got there to do. You know, quick prayer here, closing prayer here. That's not what this was. When they got together for prayer, they were serious about it. They were focused on it. You know, when we come together for our worship times, we spend a lot of time in singing, lifting up our our hearts and our voices in praise to God. And, And we also spend time in the Word talking about God's will for us. Well, they did something very much like that in their times that they got together in the first century in the, in the Acts 2 church. But, but it's a little bit different because, you see, while our prayers and our songs are, are very distinct in, in the first century, it wasn't really that way. I mean, when they prayed prayers, they would often pray them in sort of a sing-song kind of a way. And then when they sang their songs, they would sing Normally, most of the time, they would sing psalms that we find here in the Old Testament. And in doing that, they were essentially offering prayers of praise or prayers of confession or prayers of supplication, asking for God's blessing or his guidance or his care. So there wasn't a real huge difference between the prayers and the songs that they were doing. So when it talks about here in in verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, their praise was very much filled with prayer. Don't don't underestimate the significance of our prayer lives. Folks, prayer changes people. It really does. If you are struggling with someone, Pray for them. I'm not saying pray about them. Sometimes we tend to do that. We pray for them that God will give them a clue and they'll start doing things the way they need. No, 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 no. No, don't pray about people. Pray for them. Ask God's blessing upon them, God's care for them. If you got a problem with someone and you start praying for them, you're not going to have a problem all that long. You, you can't stay angry at someone you're praying for. I mean genuinely, earnestly, sincerely praying for God to bless them. And then take it to the next level, and you go get with that individual, and you pray with them, and pray for them over them. I promise you it will change your relationship. Prayer does that. And they devoted themselves to prayer. <clears throat> now, and if we want to experience the kind of things that they experienced then in the church today, if we want to see what God did through them do through us today, there's probably one other element of this, maybe the most important of all. It's easy to overlook. Because what he says at the very beginning here is they 
devoted themselves. This is not just some sort of haphazard approach to stuff or taking it and making a checklist out of it so that we can check the items off and think, okay, we're good. We got all that handled. They devoted themselves to this. If we're going to experience what they did, if we're going to experience the kind of unstoppable power that we see here in the Acts 2 church, we're going to have to devote ourselves to it. We're going to have to be all in. It can't be like it is for a lot of followers of Jesus. Well, we're going to do it when it's kind of convenient, you know. We're going to come to church fairly regularly. And, and we'll, we'll help out occasionally, you know, if it's not too much of an imposition on us. And we'll, we'll give something as long as it doesn't really create a problem with the other things that we want to do. That's not being devoted. That, that's not really being all in. What we need to do is start being like they did. But when you start talking about the kinds of things that they're doing here, I mean, selling your stuff and giving it to people, sounds kind of radical, doesn't it? I mean, this sounds almost like a cult. We get real nervous about that. We're even uncomfortable if we start talking about having someone into our home for a meal. Because after all, our, our home is our castle, isn't it? Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? If you think it is, then... Maybe we're not as devoted to the apostles' teaching as we need to be. You see, in the kingdom, there's only room for one Lord. and We can't be the Lord. But as we learn to let go of all the stuff that our culture, that our society is telling us, well, you need to do it like this and this and this, if we start to let that go because we realize we're not going to find our significance or our security, we're not going to find our happiness in what society is telling us and start to turn to God. It's going to make a dramatic impact on who we are, enable us to live the kind of life that God created us for. Now, I'm convinced that the place we're going to have to start if this is going to become a reality here is we're going to have to start by being honest with each other being real with each other, being candid about what's going on in our lives. Because that's another thing that the, the society tells us, no, you don't go there. You don't do that. You know, we, we come to church and we have to have our church face on. And we, we smile and we talk to each other and how you doing? We're doing fine. Everybody's fine. Everything's great. But so many times it's really not fine. It's not good at all. It's life is in the pits. We need, to, we need to be real with each other. Last Sunday after, after second service, I was standing back there in the foyer. People were coming by and I was saying, hello, how you doing, you know? And one person said to me, I'm doing really good. Everything's good. And went on, we're talking. 10, 15 minutes later, I'm over here in the hallway. And I'm talking to somebody. Everybody's about gone, about to leave. And I see that individual. He's kind of standing there. And so I went up and said, hey, how you doing? And he said, I just need to tell you, you know, I, I told you I'm really good. I'm really not. 
And he went on to talk about a, a struggle that's going on right now. It takes courage to do that. To just start, to just say, okay, this is what's going on in my life right now. Whether it's horrible or great or anywhere in between, this is, this is what I'm dealing with. But until we have the courage to start saying, here's what's going on, we're never going to experience what that church did, what God intends for us to experience in our lives today. <clears throat> Same principle applies in any area of life. We've got to share with each other. And that brings us to the very last verse here in Acts chapter 2. Verse 47, describing the people, he says, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And, and this kind of comes full cycle from where we started. Remember back up in verse 41, it says, after Peter preached, man, 3,000 people became followers of Jesus. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then it says, and every day more and more people were becoming Jesus followers and children of God. Isn't that cool? Now, why was that happening? Well, I think there's a real clue in that first phrase in verse 47. Look at it again. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. You know, somewhere along the line in our desire to restore the New Testament church, we've kind of missed that aspect right there. Have you noticed? I remember in years gone by, We'd do all sorts of things to try to win lost souls. I mean, we had, uh, we had gospel meetings, and we had door-knocking efforts, and we had campaigns for Christ. We had all of these things that we did, most of which were served up with a pretty good helping of guilt because we weren't bringing people to Jesus the way that we should be. And we did all of those things. We, we invested enormous amounts of time and money and energy into all of this stuff. And to be honest, we had pretty meager results, and that may be generous. I think I understand why. You see, we were mostly focused on emphasizing our pet arguments and debating people about what we thought you had to do or you couldn't do or how you did church or all, you know, this endless list of things that we could get lathered up about. And in the process, we wound up being a lot more interested in trying to convince people of our system than connect them with their Savior felt more like what somebody called a forced spiritual invasion, which makes it pretty easy to understand why people weren't interested in that and why people largely today are not interested in hearing about Christianity. Christians today, especially the more conservative ones, 
don't exactly enjoy the favor of all the people. Have you noticed? Lots of Christian bashing going on. And I'm sure that part of the reason for that is because darkness doesn't like light. And when we start shining darkness or light into the darkness, people get really uncomfortable. But if we're going to really be honest about it, we may have to admit that at least as big, if not a bigger part of the reason, is that we've kind of gotten to where we're wanting to get control of Washington and change the country because then we can tell people what they have to do and not do. And there was never any intent or desire to do that in the Acts 2 church. It's not what they were about in the New Testament. When we decide that some of these other socio-political agendas are going to take a back seat to what God is calling us to, to caring about each other, loving each other, accepting each other, supporting each other, calling each other to holiness, giving each other mercy, being the heart and the arms and the mouth and the feet of Jesus to one another. When we decide that's what our goal is, that's what our, our focus is, when we start seeing, letting God do through them what he, and do through us what he did through them, then I think we'll start seeing the kind of response that they saw. That'll do more to restore the New Testament church than all the arguments and debates we ever had. When we do that, I believe with all my heart we'll see the same thing that happened then happen now. Because people will see what's going on and they'll say, wow, I really want to be a part of that. I really want that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the marvelous model of what your kingdom is and what your church should look like. God, keep us from getting sucked in to all the banter and all the stuff that goes on in our world that wants to co-opt our faith. And Father, give us the courage to stand for you and you alone. Let us begin to be real with each other, learning to accept, to encourage one another, to grow together in Jesus Christ. And as we do, may we lift up his name so that he will be glorified. For we pray it in the name of our precious Lamb and our Savior, Jesus, and amen. There are several different times that Jesus would be in the temple in Jerusalem. 
And many of those times he found himself at odds with the religious leaders of his day. And on one particular occasion that's recorded in Luke chapter 19, Jesus makes a statement in which he says, It is written, My Father's house will be called a house of prayer. I've thought about that over the years and thought about the implications of that. How can the house of God, the people of God of today, be a house of prayer? How do we lift up to God our expressions of thankfulness and gratitude? How do we 